Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Crane, and please don't pay attention to the bear in the cage. It will not come back up later. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and I'm a grad student trying to do her thesis on this Swedish group of people. Cult, if I may say. This week, we are going to be discussing the 2019 movie Midsommar, written and directed by Ari Aster. We will be discussing the entire plot of the movie, so if you haven't watched it all the way and care about spoilers, maybe just listen to a different episode. We've made lots of good ones. Midsommar starts out with a mural that you later realize is the plot of the movie, and then we see a bunch of shots over a snowy pine forest and a woman singing eerily in Swedish. We then go to Danny's parents' home, and Danny leaves a message on her parents' answering machine saying that she got a worrying message from her sister Terry. But then we see the camera pan over to Danny's parents laying in bed, not moving. We then see Danny on her laptop going through emails from Terry, and the latest one is saying goodbye. She then calls her boyfriend Christian, who says that he's hanging out with his friend Mark, but Danny wants to see him, and starts crying when he asks about Terry and is extremely worried. But Christian brushes her feelings aside and says that she does this all the time. And it's Danny's fault for letting Terry get her worked up. Danny then says that Terry's bipolar, but Christian says that she's just looking for attention. Danny then calls one of her friends and is worried about her relationship with Christian because she says she's relying on him too much for emotional support and is thus worried that they're going to break up. Meanwhile, Christian is hanging out with his friend group and they're all trying to convince Christian to break up with Danny. His friend Josh says that he's playing out relationship drama to avoid working on his PhD thesis. While they're hanging out, Danny calls again and his friends try to get him to not pick up. Christian does decide to pick up, and Danny is sobbing and screaming no. Then we see firefighters at Danny's parents' house, where Danny's sister has committed murder-suicide, killing herself and her parents using carbon monoxide from the car in the garage. Christian arrives at Danny's apartment, where he comforts her as she continues crying. We then go to the summer outside the same window, and Danny is laying in bed underneath a painting of a girl petting a bear. Hmm, foreshadowing? She seems despondent as Christian asks her if she can go to a party, and she says that she wants to come as well. At the party, she learns that Christian's entire friend group is going to Sweden with their Swedish friend Pelle as part of Josh's research. When they get back home, Danny is mad that Christian didn't tell her about the trip, and their relationship is clearly not going well. Christian also mentions how he can work on his PhD thesis while in Sweden, but he doesn't really know what he wants to do yet. Later, Christian is hanging out with his friends again, and Pele clarifies that they are going straight to Pele's small hometown without stopping in any large cities like Stockholm. Christian says that he's invited Danny to go to Sweden to make her feel better, but he expects her to not come. His friends aren't happy about this invitation, but Christian points out how much she's been through. Danny arrives, and Pele is more polite to her than Mark or Josh, the other friends are, and talks to her about her birthday. The scene also clarifies that Danny is a psychology grad student, while all of the guys in Christian's friend groups are anthropology grad students. Pele tells her that they're going to Sweden to visit his commune for a special nine-day festival, and that their village is very rural, with traditions like hand-making clothes and using the runic alphabet. Pele says that he's very happy Danny is coming, and that he's sorry for her loss, and that he also lost his parents. Pele's comments make Danny start to cry. 
The camera transitions in a really cool way from her crying at the guy's apartment's bathroom to her crying in the airplane bathroom. The group are in a car on the way to Pele's commune, which is a four-hour drive from the airport. And Mark is making gross comments about how hot Swedish women are. And then there's a really famous shot of the car shown upside down as they pass under a banner welcoming them to Halsingland. The car pulls up to an area in the middle of nowhere where a bunch of people are picnicking in the fields. And Pele says that everyone there is other people from his village who are also returning from their trips outside. Everyone is saying how beautiful the scenery is except for Mark who complains about the bugs. And then Pele introduces everyone to his childhood best friend Ingmar. And Ingmar introduces Simon and Connie, who are his friends he bought from England. Ingmar gives them some hallucinogenic mushrooms, which everyone takes except for Danny and Christian, who says he doesn't want to take them until she does. However, Mark is really rude about it and insists that they take them all at the same time, so Danny and Christian do end up taking them. While high, Pele says that it's 9pm, even though it looks like it's noon, and Mark starts freaking out. But Pele just says that it's Sweden's midnight sun. Danny hallucinates that the grass is sprouting out of her hand and that the tree they're sitting under is breathing. And Mark mentions that f- he feels like the group is his family, which causes Danny to feel upset and she walks away to be alone. She walks past another group who's laughing and she imagines that they're laughing at her, but Ingmar reassures her that they had been laughing the whole time. Danny then cries in the bathroom but sees her sister's ghost in the mirror behind her, so she runs off screaming into the forest. Danny wakes up with the rest of the group watching over her. They say she was asleep for six hours. The group walks the rest of the way from the field to Pele's village, which is in the middle of a forest with no roads nearby. The group walks into the village through a wooden archway that looks like the sun. All the buildings are wooden and picturesque. The music that the viewer thought was just non-diegetic background music turns out to actually be played by musicians in the village. Danny is clearly immediately charmed by how cute the whole thing is, but Mark, who's been complaining the whole time, says that it looks like Waco, home of the famous cult, the Davidian Branch Seventh-day Adventists. Villagers walk up and give Danny strawberries, and Pele starts introducing them to his friends and family, especially to a leader named Father Odd. In the background, children run by towards the maypole in a central stage where adults playing instruments follow behind them. The children then give flower crowns to the elders sitting on the stage, and a woman welcomes the crowd to the village of Harga. She says that this is a particularly great midsommar that only happens every 90 years, and then she officially opens the ceremony. The camera follows a new character who is a redhead girl from the village, and she walks by the circle of villagers doing some sort of ritual dance, but stares intently at the group of main characters. Pele says that the people dancing are playing a game called Skin the Fool. The redhead girl kicks Christian as she passes by, and Christian immediately decides to join the dance. Pele wishes Danny a happy birthday and gives her a hand-drawn portrait of herself, and Danny thanks him and mentions that Christian forgot her birthday. The group is walking around and they discuss the village. Pele says that they use runes from the Elder Food Ark, and Connie asks Danny and Christian how long they'd been together, and Danny says four years, although Christian had forgotten it had been that long. Ingmar mentions that Connie and Simon have just gotten engaged, and that he's the one who introduced them. Christian asks Pele what the yellow triangle building in the distance is, and Pele says that it's a sacred building that no one is allowed in. 
The group also passes a bear in a cage, which Ingmar acts like it's totally normal for some reason. Connie asks Ingmar about a mural that depicts a woman seemingly using a spell to make a man love her by putting her menstrual blood and pubic hair in his food. Then Pele takes the group into the communal sleeping lodge, which is covered with gorgeous paintings all over the walls, and explains that this is the sleeping house for everyone between 18 to 36, because the villagers think of life as being split into four seasons, and allegedly jokes that when you reach the age 72, you must die. Danny wanders over to pictures of every year's May Queen on one wall, while Pele tells Christian that he needs to do something for Danny's birthday. Christian pulls Danny aside and gives her a piece of birthday cake, but he cannot get the candle on it to stay lit, which is definitely a metaphor for their relationship. That night, Pele says that tomorrow is the first of the Midsommar celebrations, which is called an Atastupa. Josh clearly knows what the ceremony is and is a little freaked out by it, but no one else knows what's going on. Danny cannot sleep and looks at the painting above her bed of a man stabbing himself. The next day, all the villagers are doing another ritual dance, which Danny watches. There's a banquet with the tables arranged in the shape of a rune. Mark makes fun of some girls walking backwards while putting cut flowers in a field. Then the group stands around the banquet table until two elderly people, a man and a woman, walk towards the table and sit in fancy chairs at the head of it. Josh asks if they're the ones involved in the Atastupa, and Pele says they are. Mark makes eyes at a girl named Inga across the table. Eventually, the elderly couple at the head of the table get up and do some breathing exercises and chant in Swedish. The villagers carry the elderly couple in their fancy chairs away from the table, and everyone gathers at the bottom of a cliff with the elderly couple standing on top of it. Josh asks Pele about a book the elder is reading out of, which Pele says is the Ruby Router and that it's illegal for Josh to read it, although he clearly wants to. The elderly couple on top of the cliff run their hands and wipe the blood on a large standing stone carved with runes, and Danny starts to panic as the woman walks close to the edge of the cliff, sensing what's coming. The elderly woman jumps off the cliff and dies on impact. Ingmar tells Simon and Connie, who are very noticeably freaking out, that it's part of the ceremony and that she was supposed to do that. Then the elderly man jumps, and although Simon and Connie are screaming at him not to jump, the man does not die and lands on his legs and breaks them. As the man starts screaming, all the villagers do too, seeming to share his pain. Then another man with a large mallet hits the elderly man in the head and until he dies, and the second he dies, the villagers stop screaming. Simon and Connie run away, cussing out all of the villagers, although a woman tries to explain to them that it's a custom for those who have reached the end of the Harga life cycle, and that it was a great joy for them to jump, because they will not die in fear and shame. Danny walks away from the group and cries. Meanwhile, Christian talks to Josh, who's writing about the Atastupa for his PhD thesis. Christian says that he also wants to write about the Harga for his thesis, and Josh is upset about this because he'd already been working on the topic for a long time. Christian points out that Josh was just writing about midsummer festivals in general, and that he'll write about German and British ones next, while Christian wants to focus just on this one village. The conversation ends with the two of them screaming at each other, and with Josh accusing him of seeing academia as a hobby. Then Mark complains that he sleeps through the Atastupa. Josh tells Pele about Christian stealing his thesis idea, but Pele says he doesn't think the elders would want either of them to write about this. 
Then Pele sees Danny packing up to leave and asks her to stay. Danny says that she doesn't know why she's here and Pele calms her down by saying that he wanted to share his culture with his friends and that's why he, she's here. Pele once again mentions that he lost both of his parents because they died in a fire, but that the village made him feel like he wasn't an orphan because everyone there treated him like family. Pele also says that Danny should break up with Christian because he's not empathetic enough. Later, the two elders from the Atas Tupa are cremated. Danny sits out in a field again and Christian comes to talk to her. Danny's upset that Christian didn't seem bothered by the Atastupa, but he claims that he needs to keep an open mind because it's part of the village's culture. That night, Danny asks Josh for a sleeping pill. She dreams that Christian's whole friend group leaves her in the middle of the night. Then the smoke from the guy's car driving away becomes the carbon monoxide used to kill her sister, which she sees coming out of her own mouth. The next morning, the red-headed girl stares at Christian again and puts some sort of charm beneath his bed. Josh sees this but doesn't say anything. Then, the villagers take the elders from the Atastupa's ashes and spread them across a fallen tree. Mark and Josh talk to Pele, who says that the elders have agreed Josh and Christian can write their thesis about this, but that they have to change some names. Josh also shows Pele the charm the girl made under Christian's bed, and as Christian walks up, Pele says that it means that the redhead, Maya, likes him. Then, an elder starts screaming at Mark, who has wandered out of frame, but the elder says that he's pissing on the ancestral tree, which is the same tree the elder's ashes were just spread on. Then, Connie is shown gathering all of her stuff and leaving. A villager tells her that Simon has already left for the train station and will meet her there, but Connie says he would never do that and is very upset. Danny tells Christian that Simon left the village without Connie, but he doesn't seem to care very much, instead continuing his interview with the villager. The villager tells Christian that they sometimes need to bring outsiders into the village so that it doesn't get too inbred. Danny wanders by a building where a bunch of women are cooking, and the women all reassure Danny that Simon is safely at the train station. The women compliment Danny and say that she's beautiful, and Maya is also shown making a pie. One elder shows Josh the ruby router, which he says has blank pages in the back so that it's always in progress. The elder says a disabled child named Reuben is the one who writes the new pages. The elder also says that children are purposely inbred to fulfill this oracular purpose. Then, the elder gets very upset when Josh asks if he can take a photograph of the book. Mark is playing around in a field and hears a woman screaming in the distance, but is distracted when he sees the woman Inga, who he has been making eyes at the entire time. At dinner that night, Christian's lemonade is much redder than everyone else's, and the woman serving him winks at him when she hands him a pie. Danny asks where Connie is, and Mark says that he saw her sprinting through the village earlier. A nearby villager reassures the group that she was able to meet back up with Simon at the train station. Danny says she could see Christian leaving her like Simon allegedly left Connie, which offends Christian, but they drop the topic. All the elders are glaring at Mark because he disrespected the ancestral tree earlier. Christian takes a bite of his pie and pulls a hair out of it that looks like a pubic hair. Mark is then pulled away from the dinner by Inga, who says she wants to show him something. That night, Danny gets another sleeping pill from Josh, who is studying his notes very intently. After everyone else is asleep, Josh gets up and goes to the building where the ruby router is being kept. 
Josh starts taking photos of the book with his phone, but a figure walks up behind him. The figure is backlit, but Josh says it's Mark. But then, the person hits him over the head with a mallet, killing Josh, and we finally see that the figure is actually a villager wearing Mark's face as a mask. A trumpet wakes Danny and Christian up the next morning. At breakfast, they discuss how Mark is probably still with Inga, but they aren't sure where Josh is. A villager announces that one volume in the Ruby Router has been stolen. The villagers then ask where Josh and Mark are, and Christian denies knowing where they are. Christian also says that if Josh took the book, he does not consider him a friend, which causes Danny to glare at him. The elders tell Danny that she will spend the day with the women, and tells Christian that a village leader named Siv wants to speak to him. Danny is given a white dress that all of the villagers wear, and tea that also has drugs in it. One of the village women tells her that this is the big one, and the other young women her age are very kind and inclusive of her as they explain the details of the maypole dancing ritual. She hallucinates that there's grass growing out of her feet. An older woman explains that in the past, the black one forced all of the women in the village to dance until they die. So now, every year, in defiance of him, the women all dance until they fall down. Then, Danny starts dancing around the maypole with the other woman. Siv asks Christian how he feels about Maya and says that he's been approved to mate with her because they're an astrological match. Christian walks out of Siv's office and sees Danny dancing at the maypole, and she seems very happy. As Christian watches, Maya loses the competition and stares at him. Then the scene jumps and there's only a few girls left in the dance, including Danny. The audience applauds the remaining girls, but Danny sees Christian not really caring. Then a girl brings Christian some tea that she says will break down his defenses, which he tries to refuse, but the girl insists he won't have a bad trip, so he drinks it. Danny continues dancing and is clearly very high. She tells another girl that she can't speak Swedish, but then she immediately starts speaking Swedish and the other girls can understand her. Danny wins the competition and is crowned May Queen. They give her a nicer crown than the one she already had on and a small shawl made of flowers and take her picture. All the other girls are super happy for her, but Christian stands at a distance and doesn't seem to be paying attention, probably because he's drugged. Danny thinks she sees her mother in the crowd of people complimenting her, but then is distracted by Pele kissing her. The townspeople put her on a platform and carry her off, with Christian continuing to trail behind at a distance. The face of Danny's sister seems to appear in the shape of the trees in the background. Danny is seated at the head of the banquet table, and the flowered throne she is seated on seems to move as she touches it, because she's still high. A woman tells her that she has to eat a whole herring for good luck, and she fails, and the villagers laugh, telling her a good try. Christian asks the man next to him at the banquet table what is going on, and the man claps loudly, causing Christian to flinch. A girl sitting next to Danny tells her that she's part of their family now. Meanwhile, Maya gets up from the table and Danny sees Christian watch her go. Siv tells Danny that she needs to bless all of the fields and crops as part of the traditional duties of the May Queen. Danny asks if Christian can come with her, but Siv says that the Queen must ride alone. Danny is then escorted into a giant yellow carriage that is pulled by young women instead of horses. A girl spreads a trail of flower petals from Christian to one of the buildings in the village. Meanwhile, the girls with Danny put what looks like corn, meat, and an egg into a hole in the field, and Danny repeats a sung blessing that one of the girls tells her. 
Christian, still clearly very high, is escorted into a building where some of the older women of the village are standing naked in a circle around Maya, who lays in a bed of flowers on the floor, also naked. Christian and Maya start having sex, but the older women start grabbing Maya's hands and singing to her, which freaks Christian out. Then, as he continues, all the women stop singing and start chanting rhythmically with the sex. Danny gets back from blessing the fields, and the young women she was with try to escort her to a building where she will meet with past May Queens. But instead, she hears the chanting from the building where Christian and Maya are having sex and goes to investigate. Danny sees what is happening through the keyhole in the door and starts crying and throws up. The other young women rush to her and escort her inside the building where all the beds are, where they comfort her and start crying in unison with her, similar to the villagers screaming in unison at the Ada Stupa earlier. After Christian and Maya finish having sex, Christian freaks out and runs outside, even though he's still naked. Christian sees a foot with a rune carved in the sole planted in the garden outside, which might be Josh's. Then he runs into the chicken coop where he sees Simon strung up with his back splayed open and his lungs torn outside of his body, but somehow still breathing. Then a villager walks up behind Christian and blows some sort of drug into his face that knocks him out. Christian is woken up by a villager who tells him that he can't speak or move even though he has regained consciousness. Christian is tied up on the stage near the maypole where Danny has been seated on a throne and covered in a giant flower cape and crown. A village leader explains that four outsiders and four village members must be sacrificed for the Midsommar festival, along with a ninth sacrifice chosen by the May Queen. Danny will choose between Christian and a randomly selected villager for this ninth victim, who will be sacrificed along with two volunteers from the village, who are Ingmar and another minor character. Danny has looked extremely despondent throughout this whole speech, but now she looks very angry and chooses Christian. The villagers are shown carting Connie's and Mark's bodies, now stuffed with hay, into the yellow triangle building that was mentioned as a religious temple earlier. Mark's body has a joker's hat on it with bells, and Simon and Josh's bodies are already in the temple as well, with all of the bodies arranged on stacks of hay. The villagers kill the bear that was in the cage earlier and carefully remove its organs. Then they sew Christian, still conscious but unable to move, into the bear's skin and prop him inside the yellow temple as well, right in the center. One of the villagers give him a speech about how terrible a person he has been while they give the two willing villager sacrifices you, which they say will prevent them from feeling pain. Then the villagers light the hay in the temple on fire. Danny watches along with the rest of the villagers as the yellow temple completely goes up in flames. The three sacrifices still alive start screaming as they are burnt alive, and Danny and the rest of the villagers scream alongside with them as they have done throughout the film. Danny continues to scream while wearing her massive flower cape and stumbling through the field, and in one of the most iconic shots from the movie, the camera lingers on her smiling as the temple collapses. We hope this was more interesting than the Wikipedia summary. Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot. So we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Thank you.
Welcome back from the break. In this section, we're going to analyze some of the topics we thought most needed to be discussed about this movie. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was how you felt about the ending of this movie, because a lot of people love to interpret it as like, oh, Danny's like coming into her power, like she's killing Christian and she's like taking action for herself. But I think actually the ending shows that she's been fully brainwashed by this cult and that she, if anything, has lost agency. At least before she was coming up with her own ideas, even if she was in a relationship that was bad. But now she's basically doing exactly what the cult tells her. No, I 100% agree. I mean, what's so great about this movie is that, like, at the end, you find yourself rooting for Danny, even though you're like, this is kind of grotesque. And I feel like because of that, it also helps you understand how it was so easy for her to lose her agency. Because you're also developing a cult mindset, too. But I definitely agree that she, like, it's not the best for her. Because now it's more so she's just kind of going along with whatever the cult tells her and whatever other people tell her than her being able to make her own decisions. And although it's nice to have that community, that sense of community where everyone seems to be feeling your pain and stuff, that's that's actually not what's happening here. Yeah, exactly. I really agree with your point that you see why she's making these choices. The movie is designed for you to feel sympathy for this cult, but ultimately Danny has been brainwashed and indoctrinated, and she's not in a better place than she started out the film in. Alternatively, if you don't look at it too hard, it's definitely just a little bit fun to enjoy her transformation at the end of this movie. No, definitely. I feel like most of the movie, we kind of see Danny being in low spirits, which is so valid considering the trauma she just went through. And then all of that just to end on the scene of just her smiling is incredibly powerful, you know? And then I thought that that was such a interesting ending to the movie because not only do we see how she's been indoctrinated, but also we feel happy because she's happy, you know? Like, we've seen her suffer so much, and then we see her smile here. And I'm glad she's happy, but it's still not the best. Exactly. The ending of this movie is so powerful. I lost my mind the first time I saw it, but I think that because it's so emotionally powerful, it's very easy to overlook the ultimate message of the film, which is that Danny has been brainwashed. A hundred percent. And, like... I know people do say that, like, she's empowered or whatever by the end of the film and kind of, you know, taking back the reins in her own life, I guess, by, like, killing Christian. But as we pointed out before, she's she still doesn't have agency. But also, like, even her coming to the cult and everything, like, there's a lot of manipulation in many different points of the movie and a lot of the times like I feel like that manipulation comes from Pele which is this male figure in her life so has she truly like righted against the patriarchy I don't really think so yeah good point we do see her start a relationship with Pele towards the end of this film and maybe that relationship could be healthy if it was outside of a cult but he's fully manipulating her into everything she's doing along with all the other cult members so I agree that I've definitely seen a lot of analysis arguing that this is a very 
feminist stance for her to take for some reason, and I just don't think it's that. There's other, this is a trend in horror movies right now where there's a woman who sort of ends the film by getting revenge by like murdering her abusive male, like love interest or male figure in the movie. And I tend to really like that genre. I think a lot of people do, but I don't think this is a good example of that genre. I think there's a lot better out there. Um, Like Last Night in Soho, I'm obsessed with, and I think it takes that trope and makes it much better and actually makes the women involved in the situation have agency a hundred percent i totally agree but also it's still kind of a slay literally oh yeah no agreed (laughs) it is a slay i just think we also need to keep in mind that it's a slay in the movie and not like when you think about it harder it's not that much of a slay exactly yeah so the harga is 100 percent a cult And I thought it would be fun to just talk about characteristics associated with cults and how they fit into this, because I actually am slightly qualified to talk about this topic (laughs) because I took a class on it. So I actually have useful knowledge for once. So characteristics of a cult typically include complete isolation from the outside, charismatic leaders that control how everyone thinks, extreme religious beliefs, dissent being punished, in this case with death, Leaders that emotionally manipulate the members, members being expected to devote their entire life to the cult, and essentially people not being able to escape, which every single one of these, the boxes fully ticked off in this movie. We see that these outsiders are completely manipulated by the cult. There are leaders like Siv and Father Odd that are controlling everyone's beliefs, and whenever one of the outsiders does something that goes against the village's beliefs, they're killed. Yeah, 100%. Like, I was just thinking about how the descent was punished as well, and like, immediately, like, even in the order that the outsiders were killed, it's the people who started to dissent first. So, like, with Connie and Simon, with them wanting to leave, it's like, ah, you're not allowed to do that, so... I mean, you were bought here for the sole purpose of Midsommar, but also, like, now we have a reason, because you went against our culture, against our beliefs, so we're gonna kill you. But yeah, no, I totally agree that it is a cult, and, like, I totally understand, like, seeing the trauma and the lack of support Danny has in her life, I totally understand why she would be attracted to a cult. Because, you know, I feel like a lot of the times... That's why it's so easy to become sucked into a cult, because at first it seems like, oh, a community, like, oh, like, it makes me feel this way, it makes me feel like I'm supported, like I have a place, like I have a family, um, when in reality, it's not that great. Um, so I can totally understand why Danny was attracted to it, because, like, she went through incredible loss, her entire family dead, and Christian, her boyfriend of four years, like, doesn't seem to care at all about her. Um, but here she goes, and, like, people seem to feel her pain with her. They seem to understand her as a person, and that's something she's been lacking in her life. Yeah, I really agree with you, and I think the way that the movie illustrates her attraction to this is through this practice of group mourning, which we see when she discovers Christian and Maya having sex. Everyone mourns with her when she's upset. 
they feel that pain with her. And because she'd felt so abandoned by Christian, this sort of loops her into the cult. A hundred percent. But I also feel like this kind of, once again, plays into the idea of a cult. Because, like, in a cult, I feel like people aren't allowed to be their individual selves. You know, they're a body as a whole. There's a hive mind, almost. You know, and them doing the group mourning definitely plays into that hive mind feeling. Mm, Good point, good point. Yeah, she thinks that she's gaining her emotional support, but actually she's losing her sense of self. Exactly. And also I'm sure it's like mentally taxing and emotionally taxing to be taking on other people's pains as well as yourselves. So Christian in this movie is just the worst. He's the worst boyfriend on the face of the planet. Everyone hates him. I honestly feel like our summary kind of did a bad job of capturing that because a lot of the things that he like does in the movie is like, oh, he like tries to stick up for her with her friends and stuff. But it's more the delivery. This yeah. actor, Jack Raynor, does a great job of playing him as just so apathetic the whole movie. He never seems emotionally connected to Danny or to what she's saying. So even if his actions might show that he's like doing the bare minimum, he never actually is because he's doing the bare minimum in such a way that it's very clear he'd rather be doing anything else. Yeah. And he makes it obvious, too, to her. It's not like he's trying to hide this at all. He just does not give a fuck. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) And honestly, I feel like that's why people think it's such a slay for her at the end, too. Because I feel like we kind of see this trope so often, not just in media, but in everyday lives. Where, like, I don't know. I feel like I see it so often where the woman in the relationship wants her partner to just understand her and understand her emotions while... Her partner, the guy, doesn't care or is in his own world and he's not realizing how deep her emotions are. And I feel like that's definitely, I think that's what really made the relationship between these characters so great in the sense of like the movie um, is because this is something that I'm sure a lot of audiences could relate to and definitely made them more on Danny's side, obviously, but also the cult side, because they see how the cult helps her. Or, or how we're supposed to perceive that the cult is helping her when we know she, they're not really. Mm, good point. Yeah. No, I totally see what you're saying. I do think that this relationship is very realistic in that Christian's not, like, abusive per se, but he's very clearly unhealthy in how he treats Danny. He's mentally checked out. Yes. Yeah. He does not care. And we see that he wants to break up with her. And the only reason he's not is because he knows that she's already going through a lot. We see that. That's a tough situation, though, because like I was thinking about it. I was like, if my partner's like someone died, I want to break up with them. What would I do? Like, I, I have no fucking clue. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a hard situation, but um, he doesn't handle it well. No. Let's just say that. Like, at the very least, he could be comforting. Yeah. He could offer his shoulder as a place to cry. But whenever he does that, he clearly would rather be absolutely anywhere else. Yeah. 
So the movie Midsommar is one of now the most famous examples of a subgenre of horror called folk horror, which is defined usually as horror that takes place in isolated countryside and tends to explore themes of religion or cult, especially paganism, witchcraft, and human sacrifice, and also has a theme of nature. So other famous examples of this genre could include The Wicker Man, the original one that's actually good, not the Nicolas Cage one. I mean, I guess that's also full <laughs> core. I just don't care about it. Um, the Witch, which is one of my favorites. Uh, Children of the Corn by Stephen King. And The Blair Witch. No, I think folk horror is so fun. Because I think it's so fun because I feel like it deviates from the norm. Um, usually when you think of horror, you think of like dark like, oh, supernatural demon or, like, serial killer or stuff like that. But something about folk horror that I think is really interesting is I just think it offers something that's so different from the norm. And it's so interesting because I feel like a lot of times folk horror, like, I mean, movies in general, they focus on a couple of characters. But I feel like in folk horror, you really get to know them. Like, Blair Witch, like, it follows, what, three, four people? Yeah, three people. And, like, you get to know them, and then the end's, like, scary as fuck. And it's the same as with Midsommar. And I feel like it's not as in-your-face in the horror. Like, I feel like it's more subtle, and I kind of appreciate that. Like, at the beginning, you know? And then at the end, it like, whoa. Like, it. Yeah, okay, at the beginning, sure. Yeah. I was like, why do you think this movie's subtle? <laughs> no, yeah, the beginning, for sure. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I think that... It also tends to have more of this feel of, like, magic because it focuses on themes of paganism and witchcraft. So even if there is no magic happening, which there isn't in Midsommar, it's all just the cultists, um, we see that there is still this aura of mystery around it. So it feels almost supernatural without actually being supernatural. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's fun. It is fun. Yeah. yeah. So somewhat relatedly, Midsommar is also an example of good day scare horror. Um, so pretty much every scene in this movie happens in broad daylight because they're at the Midsommar Festival in Sweden, so the sun never sets. I think the sort of the one exception would be Josh's death because it happens indoors in a building with like no windows, basically. But every other scene, broad open field, sunny sky, really just pretty scenery. And all these awful, horrible things are happening in it. And Aster has talked about specifically being very interested in exploring this after making Hereditary, which was his previous film before this one, which is extremely dark, especially in the scenes where someone's about to die. They are all like at night. There's like things in the shadows. So he very much wanted the opposite of that and he wanted to prove that it could still be just as scary as hereditary without relying on that horror movie trope of someone hiding in the shadows i love that i think it makes it more terrifying because these things can happen in broad daylight and it's just like the scene with the dude and his like lungs just splayed out there and like the chicken coop to see that in broad daylight was terrifying and I loved every moment or like I think the scene that really scarred me was when the old couple not the old couple they're not a couple when the old people uh commit suicide 
and then their head is just splashed all around the rocks i was like damn that is wild and you can see every single detail and i just think it's so powerful because you're you're not you're not expecting these things to happen in daylight i think also because we associate the dark with bad things and the light with good things it's so much easier for the audience to give in to the cultish the cult scene in the movie because we're like oh like it's daylight dog like what the fuck could they be doing like it's it's fine they're cool like they have murals they have murals <laughs> the universal mark of good people mm-hmm. yeah no i totally get what you're saying especially when you mentioned how much more terrifying it made the really gory scenes i mean i really think we need to give like the special effects team a huge shout out on this movie because there's nowhere for them to hide you really are meant to see every single detail of like the old couple being like smashed to death on these rocks you see like little particles of flesh everywhere it's disgusting and usually a scene like that would be shot in partial darkness in a horror movie and you can hide some of the special effects but you can't in this movie it's completely visible which makes it more effective to the audience and i would assume much more difficult for whoever is making the special effects yeah good for them go off go off it's that's like it's literally i had to i had to pause the movie and i had to take a walk after that scene because like i can handle gore but that was that was a lot it's a lot yeah so aster has also described this movie as being like a fairy tale in reference to its more sunny vibe um which makes sense especially with all the tie-ins to the hargus paintings that sort of tell a folk tale the painting above Danny's bed of a girl petting a bear is very fairy tale like. So we see how this daylight atmosphere can also lend itself to the tone that the director is trying to convey. Another way that this daylight atmosphere is used is that there's lots and lots of wide shots in this film, with the Harga in the background doing things that are secretly important but you don't realize it yet or just like strange like dances and rituals that you don't really understand in addition to the foregrounded action so these wide shots are similar to the day scares in that they present a vibe of being able to see what's going on but in reality, they actually don't help the audience figure out what's going on at all, unless you are like really paying attention, which if it's your first time watching, you're probably not. No, and I feel like that also puts us in the perspective of the outsiders coming in, because they're just going to be focused on what's happening up like near and personal to them, or like their friends and stuff. But then like when you take a step back and you look at the bigger picture, you're like, oh shit, Everyone here is planning for a demise right now. Like, we should be a little, we should be a little careful. Definitely, like, I just love the techniques this film uses because it really puts you in the perspective of these characters, but then it's so fun to rewatch this film because there's so many details that you just may have missed before. Yeah, rewatchability of this movie is a 10 out of 10 for sure. There's so many Easter eggs, especially in the paintings throughout. Once you know what the plot is, every single painting is literally just the movie. There's, like, um, a scarecrow in the background of, like, Danny's house. Um, Like, the bodies are turned into scarecrows at the end. Lots of little details like that. Also, the use of these day scares allows the movie to be 
visually stunning in a way that most horror films can't explore. So it uses these pastel color palettes. All the Harga villagers are wearing these matching white costumes with like pastel embroidery on them. A lot of the buildings from the religion are bright yellow. There's flowers everywhere. The famous Florence Pugh flower cape that is gorgeous and also super brightly colored. Very pretty. Apparently it weighs like 30 pounds, which is insane. That's insane. Yeah. Speaking of Florence Pugh, what an icon. <laughs> what she was an so icon. so good. And she was like, what? She was like 20 or something when she made this movie? Like, insane. Her yes. talent. She's so effective at portraying this character that's going through all this terrible grief. I mean, that is probably really hard to act like someone who is that devastated, especially early in the movie. And she is so effective in getting the audience to empathize with her, to understand exactly where her character's at. And she does such a good job of taking the audience through this character's emotional journey that the plot of this movie really rests on. No, a hundred percent. And I think, I mean, there's so many great elements to this movie and her acting is definitely in the forefront. Um, because like, once again, as an, as an audience, uh, we are seeing this through her perspective, her perspective primarily and her ability to just portray her emotions like that automatically makes us just want to like her and just like care for her and stuff. So phenomenal job. Like it's so hard to be, especially knowing what's going to happen in the end. It's so hard to portray a character that way to like make everyone root for her at the end like yay she's killing christian wow good for her it's impressive it is impressive also can we just take not too long like 30 seconds to appreciate the don't worry darling drama oh my god (laughs) her in the like purple outfit with the drink oh my god (laughs) bruh they're like all that don't worry taking me out it was taking me out oh my god the did harry styles fit on chris pratt no it wasn't chris pratt it was chris pine yeah 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 and the it's a movie that feels like a movie (laughs) Me writing my essays. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely nothing at the same time. I was like, I like this movie because it really feels like a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay, Harry, Harry, if that even is your real name. That made me feel better about this podcast because (laughs) I don't know how good our analysis is. But I, it, we're just talking about it. We're just talking about it. But it has to be better than this movie is like a movie. No, literally. It's like, dog, come on. I know you're better than this. I was like, Harry, come on. <laughs> this movie maybe is like it's just, a movie. Maybe he's, maybe he's more eloquent in fan fiction than we've been about. <laughs> no! <laughs> no! I'm going to sell you to One Direction for that comment. <laughs> be like, Harry, the same. The other people. The other ones. <laughs> I think there's a Liam in there. Yeah, there's a Liam. I do know their names. You do? It's, I don't. It's Harry, Zane, Liam. Liam sucks. Liam Payne. 
I don't. That man gives me misogynistic vibes. Ew, no, not like, misogynistic I look at you, I'm like, I don't like you. He also gives me homophobic vibes. It's Ew. just something about his. He's just so straight <laughs> that I'm like, <laughs> like you have like I do not. I would not trust you around my kids. You know, like I don't. I don't like you. And then there's Niall, and then there's Louis. But there's a whole, like, oh my god, Harry's been shipped with so many people, because there's, like, there's, like, there's, there's, Larry Stylinson, which is Harry x Louis, and, like, people keep going on about that all the time. Or wait, is that Niall? I don't remember. I think, I think it was Louis. But my favorite one is Obama, which is Harry Styles in Obama. (laughs) It's what?! It's a what? <laughs> I just think it's so funny. And sometimes, like, edits show up on my TikTok, and I'm like, this is so funny. I, like, like him. I just ascended to another planet. I'm sorry. Going. <laughs> I really learned something new today. Thank you for bringing this yeah, to my attention. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's Look at how real it is. Their love. No. <laughs> I want to love like theirs. <laughs> Uh, but why are they trying to break up Michelle and Barack? Who said they had to break up? Fair, fair. Anyways, Obama, Obama for life. Um, I don't know. I, think, I I just think it's so funny. It is. It is. Okay. Anyway, so good. Good tangent. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, bringing it back to the topic at hand. Christian makes a comment to Danny that they shouldn't judge the Harga for their practice of Atastupa because you need to be respectful of other people's cultures. And as an anthropology student, this sent off little bells in my head of, oh, professors have talked about this before. (laughs) So I am here to tell all the non-anthropology students that listen to our podcast that the statement is not necessarily correct. So in anthropological theory, there is cultural relativism and there is moral relativism. And these are two theories of how you should approach analyzing other cultures through the practice of ethnography. So cultural relativism is basically not judging other cultures' practices based against Western culture. Essentially, don't center Europe as better or more normal than other cultures. And this is very important for anthropology. Definitely do this. This is good. Helpful. Moral relativism is not imposing your own morality onto other cultures, and although there are definitely scholars who like agree with this, I think most scholars would agree that this is not necessary when discussing something as extreme as human sacrifice, which you do sometimes in anthropology. The most common example of this is that the Aztecs committed human sacrifice, and it's perfectly acceptable to be like, yeah, that's not a good thing. So... In the context of Christian arguing that anthropologically Danny shouldn't say the Atastupa is bad, he totally, like, you can. That's anthropologically acceptable to be like, maybe don't commit human sacrifice. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I guess, I mean, I'm not an anthro student, so I guess I've never fully thought about it before. Like, I knew knew of cultural relativism, but I didn't know about moral relativism. But that's so interesting. And I'm sure, I'm sure, like, the people who made this film knew that, you know? Probably. Probably. I think it's, like, pretty basic anthro theory. 
I definitely learned it in like Anthro 101, you yeah. know? <laughs> no, that just makes sense. And that's really interesting. Yeah. So this is basically another example of Christian being absolutely no help to Danny in no, terms of like just... emotional, like respecting her emotions. He was just trying to take the high road. He was like, yeah, you're a psych student. Well, guess what? I'm an anthro student. I'm going to put all these terms out there that you probably didn't study in psychology. So, suck it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's 100% <laughs> what he was trying to do. And I'm here to say no. No. That's not really a thing. As far <laughs> as I know. Okay, listen, I'm not like an expert, but this is what I've been told by my professors who are experts. <laughs> so also, I wanted to talk about whether the Harga are taking race into account in their actions and is the movie aware of the racial commentary it's making? Because I've listened to other analysis of this movie and other podcasts, and they pointed out that everyone in the Harga is white, very, like, stereotypically Swedish, like blonde hair, blue eyes. And Danny, who's the sole survivor who's recruited into the cult and it's implied by Christian's conversation with the villager, has specifically been recruited so that the cult can continue having kids without inbreeding also fits this description as blonde and white. So there was no sort of like visual distinction between her and the pre-existing cult members. And however, the cult does kill all the people of color in the group like Josh, Simon, and Connie. And this could just be because they were rude. Or it could be that this movie is making commentary on sort of small groups from, like, white-majority countries being unwilling to accept outsiders who are people of color. Huh. I guess I've, I've never really looked into this theory, but, like, it makes sense. Especially because, like, if you just look at a cult in general, I feel like a lot of them share similar attributes, so it would make sense if they all looked similar, you know, like, on addition to, like, Sweden being very white and blonde, but, like, it would make sense. I, like, I don't know if the movie's making that commentary on purpose. I, I feel like in order to see that, we would have to, like, look at, like, their casting sheets, you know? Like, did they request for, like, do they want people to be a specific racist or to look a specific way? Or, like, for Danny, you know, where they, like, she should be blonde, you know? Yeah, good point. I really don't think we're given enough information to figure out whether this is on purpose, especially since there are, like, the cult gives reasons for why they kill these people that are not racially motivated at all. So Simon and Connie, like, cuss them out during the Atastupa. Josh photographs the Ruby router with after they explicitly tell him not to. So it very much could just be, you know, film analysis people have been like, ooh, a new way to analyze this film. Yeah. But it could also be racial commentary on small groups not being willing to accept people of color into their, like racist cult thing no definitely definitely i mean like it's such a valid argument to make it's just something that i guess i didn't think of when making the movie but now it's something that like when i rewatch, it will definitely be on my mind because also like when you think about it too like they talked about how sometimes they get outsiders to come into so that they don't become too inbred you know but like all the children are also white and blonde, you know? So are they very specific in which outsiders they come in? Like, do they also have to have specific attributes? Like, how does it work? Exactly, yeah. Like, if they're bringing in outsiders, every single outsider they've brought in has to have been white. 
because yeah. they are so pale and blonde. Yeah. Maybe Josh was the first black man to ever set foot in this village. Who knows? We really don't know. Yeah. We're not given enough information to really figure out the answers to these questions, but I agree that it's an interesting lens to look at this film. A hundred percent. Okay, so on this podcast, we always rate these films in two different ways. We rate them on a scale of from 1 to 10 on both how queer they are and how much we like this movie. So on a scale of how queer this is, I personally would give it a 1 out of 10. I don't think there is any way to interpret any character in this film as queer. I think we just reviewed this film for the sole purpose of because we both like it and not because it's relevant to this podcast and... You know, it's just, they're they're straight. These people are straight. (laughs) Yeah. No, I agree. I was going to give it, like, a one or less, too, because there are no queer people in this movie at all. Yeah. Uh, It's just fun. I really love the movie. Mm -hmm. That's all. (laughs) Yeah. It's fun. We wanted to watch it. Next episode, we'll do a movie that's more queer. Yeah. Deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. On a scale of one to ten... Uh, on how much we enjoyed the film in general, I'm going to give this movie a 10 out of 10. It's, like, maybe my favorite horror movie. No, it's not. It's my, like, third or fourth favorite. But it's, like, top five horror movies ever for me. I love it. No, I was also going to give it a 10 out of 10. I think it's definitely in my top five, too. I think it might be my second, my first one being Hereditary, which is by the same the same uh director i just really i really love the work i think it's so fun so fresh so every episode of this podcast we connect our most recent movie to the next one we're going to do through some weird obscure little connection like a similar plot similar actor something that the movies have in common so our connection to the film next week is going to be cult it's a cult film (laughs) yay (laughs) Thanks for joining us on this episode of Queer by Candlelight. We'll see you in two weeks. Woo! Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti. Thank you.